This is Eli Lake, and you are listening to The Reeducation. My guest today is the author of The New History of Gay Washington, The Secret City, Jamie Kirchhoff. And the topic of today's show is liberalism and gay equality. That was Lady Gaga's anthem, Born This Way. You can hear this song at shopping malls, inside Ubers, or on a daytime talk show as it cuts to commercial. It's almost banal, and the fact that its popularity is cause for its banality tells us something remarkable and hopeful about America in 2022. Because this song is a celebration of a simple concept that people who sleep with their same gender are not perverts, traitors, or predators. They are just being true to themselves. They are born this way. Now today this view is conventional wisdom. For most of the 20th century, the government, the police, the medical community, the media, and our culture treated homosexuality as a sin or a mental illness. It marked one a deviant. It was a source of shame. It made someone a target of blackmailers, forced gay men and lesbian women to take enormous risks every time they sought a sexual partner. It was a kind of apartheid. The straights could marry, serve in the federal government, bear witness at trials, pick up women at bars. The gays could not. So it's worth asking today how our society changed. It's a very complicated story, and I don't pretend that I'm going to tell the entire story today. But one man who deserves a lot of credit was an astronomer named Frank Kameny. Like many gay men in the 1950s, he was fired from his federal government job when a secret investigation determined that he was a homosexual. Unlike anyone else before him, though, he chose to sue the government for wrongful termination. He fought his case for years without success. But Kameny was undaunted. He organized the first openly gay protest in the country, including a picket line around the White House demanding gay equality, and that was in 1965. He coined the phrase... Gay is good, something that he has said he is most proud of. Kameny made the case to the rest of America that gay men and lesbian women were just like everyone else. They were not asking for special status. They wanted equal status. He urged fellow activists to dress like they were applying for a job. I remember specifically when we picketed in front of the Civil Service Commission, my... uh, uh, um, my approach was, they, we want them to employ us. Therefore, within the normal mode of the day, uh, we have to give the appearance of being employable. In Kameny's struggle, his most potent weapon was free speech. Because when he lost his legal battles, his last resort was to persuade his fellow citizens that men and women who were born like him deserved the same rights promised by the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution as anyone else. If Frank Kameny lived in a country that lacked the First Amendment, his movement would have probably failed. But he lived in America, and he was able, over the course of his lifetime, to change our country by the power of his arguments. The author Jonathan Rauch makes 
the case poignantly in a short video last year for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And best of all to me, the director of the agency that had fired him, that was now apologizing, was openly gay. So that's what speech and argument and confronting bad ideas will do for a minority group in one generation. There is no hate crime law or no anti-discrimination statute that can come anywhere near what speech and debate can do for us. Today, many leaders of the LGBTQI plus movement have lost faith in free speech. And we see it all the time. There were attempts by trans and trans allies who were employees of Netflix last year to at first stop the airing of Dave Chappelle's latest comedy special and then to demand more of a role in the process of greenlighting productions of the company. In 2020, we saw an uproar over Abigail Schreier's book, Irreversible Damage, that looks at the recent trends of many teenage girls deciding to seek sexual transition surgery. Target stopped selling her book under pressure from activists. A lawyer for the ACLU, who is himself trans, named Chase Strangio, declared on Twitter that he would die on the hill of stopping the circulation of Schreier's book. Spotify employees tried to get the company to remove an interview Schreier gave to Joe Rogan's podcast. All of this is in the name of protecting trans people, and particularly trans youth, from arguments that may harm them. Now, leaving aside the danger to free speech when disagreeable arguments are treated as a form of violence, which is exactly what this kind of campaign does, this new turn in the movement also reflects a failure to appreciate how gay equality was achieved. It was achieved through an adherence to liberal principles, with a small l. Gay men and lesbian women did not achieve their rights by mandating right-think on wrong-thinkers. They achieved freedom by appealing to a straight majority's better angels, by making unpopular arguments with clarity and force. Frank Kameny didn't ask for others to ban the distribution of books and scholarly articles that insisted that someone like him was mentally ill. He just calmly refuted them over a lifetime, and he won. And it's because particularly men and women like Frank Kameny did not silence themselves. We now accept that gays and lesbians are born and not recruited. Well, now the re-education is really honored to have my dearest friend on and the author of the new history of gay Washington in the 20th century, The Secret City, a terrific essayist and journalist. Again, my dear friend, Jamie Kerchick, thanks so much for coming on The Re-Education. Thank you for having me, Eli. It's wonderful to be here. Well, there's so much to get into in your kind of epic new history. But I want to start with just a sort of something that kind of the cho your choice to start with the Roosevelt administration, Sumner Wells, mm. and you explain in the prologue that there have been gay men and gay people in American history since before the revolution, 
but you, why choose to start with the Roosevelt administration? Yeah. Well, two reasons. One is that Washington really becomes a city during the New Deal, and you see gay people start moving there. The, 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 the story of gay people in America in the 20th century is in many ways the story of urbanization. It's gay people leaving mm-hmm. small, small towns and going to cities. And that begins to happen. We have some, you know, we have anecdotal evidence of that happening in the 1930s and sort of unofficial gay bars and gathering places start to develop. But the real um, reason for starting the book then is that is because of World War II and the effect that World War II has on the conception of homosexuality. Because prior to that, homosexuality was a sin, you know, it was condemned and is condemned in the, in the Christian, in the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's considered a medical diagnosis, a sexual abnormality and whatnot. But with World War II, it transforms from that into a national security threat because national security becomes a concept that didn't even exist as a concept really mm-hmm. World War II. The United States needs to start developing a bureaucracy for managing secrets and mm-hmm. the, the security of secrets. And homosexuality is considered the most dangerous secret of them all. And therefore, gay people are believed to be susceptible to blackmail. And there's actually a funny story I tell about the way secrets were handled in Washington before World War II. It involves FDR's naval aide, John McRae, and he's walking down the street past the Corcoran Gallery, and he sees a piece of white paper flying in the air. This is around the late 1930s or 1940s mm-hmm. even. And he snatches the paper out of the air, and he looks at it, and it is it says top secret on it. And it had literally it had, right. flown out, it had flown out the window of the Department of State, which used to be next to the White House in the Eisenhower building. When in the old executive office. Yeah, in the old executive office building. This this top secret government document had just flown out the window. I mean, that, that was sort of how secrets were managed prior to World War II. And then with World War II, secrecy suddenly becomes a very, very important concern in Washington. We didn't really have what might be called the national security state until exactly. World War II. That's exactly. a guess, right. I want to ask, as a, and I think you basically make this case, but was it easier to be gay in Washington, let's say during the uh, Harding administration, than it was, I would say, I mean, certainly, I mean, you you get into the history with Dwight Eisenhower's executive order on sexual perversions. Yeah, it seems like you could argue it was harder to be gay, you know, after the creation of the national security state in Washington than before. Is that would you agree with that? I, I would. I would. I mean, obviously, up, up until we start to see the beginning of the gay liberation movement and things change in the 70s. Right. But yeah. yeah. But in the 1930s, it wasn't as if there was any sort of government's interest in this issue. It wasn't even it wasn't even considered in an issue. You know, were, the were, were, were there vice squads of, of metropolitan? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. There are vice squad. I, I you know, there are there are reports of the police arresting men in Lafayette Square, which was the main sort of sexual cruising ground for gay men right, right across from the White House. There are, there, are, there are police reports of those arrests occurring in the late 19th century. But the notion of this being a you know, government-wide concern that extended just beyond the police, that, you know, reached, the, that reached the upper levels of the bureaucracy, that, that became a kind of guiding passion of the United States government, that doesn't happen until the Eisenhower administration, really the late, the late Truman years and, and then the Eisenhower ad- administration. Now, before we get into some of the incredible, I mean, and and really, we could do 10 podcasts on this book because it is so, so rich and there's so much 
of the history. I mean, I, 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 we're going to talk about Lyndon Johnson in a, in a little bit, but I want to just get an overview from you about how the interlocking systems of both local law, national security, mm -hmm. cultural mores, and what might be kind of called like, you know, the rules of political skullduggery mm. combined to create, I think you would have to sort of say an, an apartheid like system for gay men, especially in Washington, but really in the country. And that's not, I'm not trying to kind of compare or equate here to Jim Crow or apartheid South Africa, but insofar as this is a system, mm -hmm that is not just discriminatory, but had a kind of profound effect on some of our most brilliant Americans who just happened to be yeah. born gay. So if you could just talk about that, because to me, I think it's, it would be difficult for younger listeners to this podcast to really understand. I think it's easy to understand maybe like, you know, because of the victory of gay marriage and now that partners can, you know, go to hospitals and that, that, that you can sort of yeah. understand. But what it meant that at any moment, your life, your livelihood, your family that you as a gay man had, you know, would create with another woman, even though it was a loveless marriage, would be destroyed for any number of reasons, often for petty political ones. And just talk about that. Sure. Being a gay person in Washington in the 1950s was, I prefer the comparison to being a dissident in a East sure. Rock country. Mm -hmm. The existence of gay people was illegal. It was, you know, the same-sex sexual practices were illegal in every state. Your your gathering places were monitored by the police and frequently shut down and raided. Uh, your publications were treated like Sami's dot. You know, the first, the earliest gay magazines in America in the 1950s were routinely confiscated by the police or shut down on obscenity laws. Gay people were institutionalized. You know, they were deemed sexual psychopaths and sent to mental institutions, much like the Soviets did to their sure. dissidents. The medical community, the medical establishment deemed homosexuality a mental illness. And that the American Psychiatric Association didn't lift, it didn't remove homosexuality from the, the DSM until 1973. And you had social opprobrium from every sector of society. And so, yes, it's very, it is similar uh, to a Jim Crow system. I mean, the difference is that gay people could hide. Right. Gay well, the difference is that, is that one is a kind of visual marker. Yeah. Your, the, you know, your, your melanin right. which versus. Makes, yeah, which right. makes gay people very threatening in the public mind because the fact that they can hide, that they can, you know, anyone can be gay. It could be the milkman. It could be this politician. It could be, you know, it could be your teacher. That makes them even more threatening, a very kind of a very threatening presence in the American mind in post-war America. Well, and, and I have to say, as reading it as a as a heterosexual, it really drove home something that, you know, you know, when we when I, you know, we were fortunate to kind of come up and, and grow up in a society that was shedding, you know, this this caste system as a as it affected gay people which is a good thing, but it really did, you know, you really understand the concept of the idea of born this way, which is to say, if you think that homosexuality is a sin and that one can choose not to do this, or do you understand it as part of your identity, that there's nothing you can do, try as you might, 
you will be attracted to someone of the same sex. And that's part of your identity. And I think that part of this is that the understanding of being gay in this country until fairly recently was that it was a sin and you could choose it or a mental illness that had to be treated. And once people understood that this was it, and then I want to talk about this in a second, that gay is good, that it's fine. Yeah. That is really the revolutionary kind of conceptual. Would you agree with that? Yes. And I mean, I don't want, I I don't, I don't want to get too far into what we might talk about later, but I think it's very important that we understand the role of, of, a man named Frank. Kameny. Yeah, well, that's that was my next question about Frank yeah. Kameny and the Mattachine Society. Right, so, so we can. So Frank yes. Kameny is, is a Harvard-trained PhD astronomer. He's working for the Army Map Service, which is the predecessor to the U.S. Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He's working for them in 1957, so it's right after the launch of Sputnik and the height of the space race. And he is working in Hawaii in one of the observatories there and is summoned back to Washington by the Civil Service Commission where he's promptly fired. They have evidence that he's gay. He was he had been apprehended in a, in a police entrapment episode in San Francisco before. He's fired. And what he does is, is revolutionary. He, he becomes the first gay person fired by the federal government to actually fight back. You know, up until this point, where seven years into the lavender scare, thousands of people have lost their jobs because of their sexual orientation, real or perceived. And he says, you know what? This is not right. It's unjust. I'm going to fight it. And you know, just to go back to our last question about how homosexuals were viewed in American society, Frank could not even get the ACLU to start to argue his case. That was how lonely and, 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 uh, right. uh, and sort of marginalized gay people were at this point. That not even the ACLU would take would take the case of a of a gay person fired because of their sexual orientation. And he he is really in many ways the first sort of public figure in America to come out of the closet. And the arguments that he makes, he founds an organization called the Mattachine Society of Washington. It's a Washington chapter of, of an organization that had been started originally in Los Angeles in 1950. And they make the case that serving your country and being gay are not incompatible, that there's nothing wrong with being gay. And it's you need these people to come out of the closet and to make these arguments. Well, he's the first to say gay is good. He says gay is good. He coins that term. He is very centrally involved in repealing the American Psychiatric Association condemnation of homosexuality. He plays a central role in that. He plays a central role in getting the Civil Service Commission to lift its ban on gay people working in the federal government. He's really the the Rosa Parks, the Martin Luther King, the Bayard Rustin, you know, he's all of that rolled into one for the for the gay rights movement. Can I, I, I there's a wonderful I mean, and you do you, you, you do a masterful job in the whole book, but I love this detail, which is that when they were organizing some of their first public protests. Yeah, he imposed a fastidious dress code. Yes. Talk a little bit about this idea that you have this, you know, revolutionary figure, especially culturally in this country. Yeah. Who, you know, almost took the opposite approach of, you know, the radicals of the late 1960s or maybe some people today, which is that the or or the act up movement, you know, for example, later, which was I want to shock the straights. He was like, no, I want to convince the straights that we are just like them. Right. And that if you were and that for lesbian women, he wanted them to wear heels at first and he would only yes. agree to the yes. have them wear flats. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the, for the first pickets that were organized yeah. outside government buildings, including the White House in April 1965, 
he was modeling these protests or pickets really on the African-American civil rights movement, which also mandated, you know, strict dress codes and right. modes of behavior for its protesters, you know, at the sit-ins at lunch counters in the South where Martin Luther King told his followers to not respond to the most awful racist harassment and even violence. I mean, it was a nonviolent movement. And, you know, this sort of approach is derided as respectability politics today. But you can't really argue. Incredibly with, effective, though. You can't argue with the results. I, yeah. I don't think you can. I mean, Frank was in many ways a small C conservative person. I mean, certainly politically, he was very liberal. He was he ran for Congress as a, as a Democrat in 1971. That was an, another first of his. He was the first openly gay person to run for Congress in the District of Columbia in 1971. He was a very liberal, even left-wing Democrat. But when it came to sort of these core American values and the approach, the method of political organizing, he was a traditionalist, I think. He understood that you had to appeal to Americans on their own level. And he would tell the picketers outside the White House, if you want to be employed, look employable. That was I love that. Great. I mean, I just, I, I love it because it, it it really does. It's a small detail, but it tells us a lot about the motivations. I want to just- well, I say It tells you a lot about gay Washington, right? Because this, yeah. is, this is a conservative city, Washington. Yes, it's, it is. It's the government's. And these are- Although I got to tell you, you would not have known that this weekend in my neighborhood where I took my daughter Nora out to uh, Pride Saturday. And uh, it was a very different, different, different DuPont circle than the one you described so uh, eloquently in your book. I'll just say things have Things have changed. Yes, but that's are. what I think, that's what, that shows you the difference between sort of the Washington gay world and that of New York or San Francisco, where, you know, the activists in New York and San Francisco were not appealing to the same- audience as the one in Washington with the Mattachine Society. The one in the Mattachine Society was appealing to the Civil Service Commission, which was responsible for, you know, federal employment. And to make the case to them, you did have to make a case that gay people could serve just as just as well as straight people. I think I think that this more conservative approach was was necessary. Now I want to get into something because this is something that as a longtime national security reporter, I did not know, but you really kind of prove that the concern that the national security state had that gay people could be blackmailed by foreign powers and basically pressured into becoming spies was largely unfounded. Entirely unfounded. Yeah, entirely unfounded. All these cases showed that actually the, you know, that, that yes, it's true the Soviets did try to um, pressure people who were gay in the same way that there were blackmailers who just did it for money. But it did not result in, you know, turning someone into an asset or a spy or a traitor. Well, I mean, the origins of this myth of the gay traitor, I traced them back to a case involving a the counterintelligence chief of the Austro-Hungarian military, a man named Alfred Radel, Colonel Radel. And in 1913, he is exposed as having sold secrets to the Russians. And he's given a pistol and he commits suicide. It is later, the, the, the story comes out, the story is sort of peddled by the Austro-Hungarian military that he was gay and had been blackmailed by the Russians into selling secrets. And this takes off and everyone believes it. If you read Alan Dulles's biography, it begins with a young 
This is the first civilian intelligence chief, head of the head of the CIA. His biography. He's the first non-military. Non-military, right, non- right, right. Civilian, civilian head of the CIA. Yeah. His biography begins with him as a young foreign service officer in World War One era Vienna, and it describes a city that is still reeling from this scandal involving treason and homosexuality and espionage. And D- D- Dulles would write about this case multiple times. And the case would be mentioned in congressional hearings about the reason for denying security clearances to gay people. This was the one example that they had was the Radel case. It turns out after the Russian archives were opened, the Russians did not even know that Radel was homosexual. The reasons for his, for Radel's treason were more prosaic. He wanted money. He had a very expensive, high living lifestyle. It had nothing to do with his, with his homosexuality. But the Radel case, it keeps on coming up in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. It's referred to as the sort of paradigmatic case of the gay traitor. And then we have examples of, of others, you know, who 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 had their lives ruined in in your book, and that they, they there was never any evidence that they 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 were blackmailed because of their their being gay. No, no. And in fact, one of the cases I tell is of Joe Alsop, the journalist, That's right. uh, the very famous newspaper columnist who was very anti-communist, anti-Soviet. And he's visiting Moscow in 1957. He has an interview with Nikita Khrushchev. And then later in the trip, he is seduced into a honey trap operation with a young man. Photographs are taken. They are presented to him by these KGB officers who sort of burst into the hotel room. And they try to persuade or, or, or coerce him into becoming an, an asset for them back in Washington. What does Alsop do? He goes back uh, to his hotel. He writes out an entire confession of the, of the event that happened. He acknowledges that he's been a, a homosexual since boyhood. He sends it off to his friend, the ambassador to the Soviet Union, Charles Bolin. And that document is given to the CIA. And it finds its way into the hands of J. Edgar Hoover. But the point is, is that Joe Alsop did exactly what, you know, the guardians of the national security state wanted gay people to do in such a, in such a situation. He didn't turn secrets over to our adversaries. He went to his government and told them exactly what happened. So, yeah, not only are there no examples, documented examples of a gay person giving over uh, information due to coercion from blackmail. This one example that that I cite in the book uh, argues against it and shows dis, dis, disproves it, and yet it had no effect on government policy. Well, uh, you mentioned in the just now J. Edgar Hoover. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but yeah, I mean, let's be honest. This is somebody who, on the one hand, is responsible for all kinds of blackmail and you know continuing elements of the Lavender Scare throughout the 20th century, but on, on the other hand, it's been long rumored and. It's sort of seen as this guy isn't isn't it ironic that he was a crossdresser that he was gay and then he never married. Jamie, you have done the the research into this and you kind of come away saying, well, there's really no evidence that that J. Edgar Hoover was gay as 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 much as we would all love to know. To we would all love to believe that he was right, but of course it turns out that it's not true. And talk a little bit about that. Well, I you know I was writing a work of history and I had to stick to the facts and there are no there's no evidence one way or the other as to what J. Edgar Hoover's sexuality was, whether he was gay, whether he was straight. So that's the conclusion that I draw. There's lots of circumstantial evidence, of course, that he might have had a gay relationship with his loyal aide, Clyde Tolson. There, it, it would seem as if they might have had one. It was certainly maybe perhaps hiding in plain sight. There, 
lunching every day at the Mayflower. They're traveling together. There are photographs of them looking, you know, admiringly at one another as if they were a couple, one of which I publish in the book. The accusation that he was a cross-dresser is completely baseless. It comes from a woman who was a widow of a mob boss that had dealings with Hoover, and she was paid for her story to buy a buy by a journalist. But these sorts of myths have become sort of widely believed or accepted. Certainly, we know that Hoover was extremely sensitive to the. Yeah, I Hoover. love this. At one point in the late '60s, the FBI goes to like this society in Ohio. No, this is in 1943. Sorry, this. Sorry, right, my bad. I yeah. They're I, okay. interviewing it. Right. There, there was a group of women in a bridge club in northwestern Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania. And one Sorry, of them- Sorry, I already screwed that up. I, uh, no, no, no. Yeah. One of them, well, there's a funny, well, one of, one of them, one of these ladies says to the group, sort of apropos of nothing, well, I, I heard the director of the FBI is a queer. And it turns out, unfortunately for her, that one of the other women in the bridge club, her nephew is in, in the FBI. And he tells his superior and his superior tells his superior and it makes its way back to FBI headquarters. And then what do you know? This woman is being called into the FBI field office in Cleveland or wherever the nearest city is. And she's given a very stern talking to by the special agent in charge, demanding to know where did she hear this slander against the director, whose job it is, is to defend the country in a time of war. And how dare you say these things? Yeah, think about that, listeners, by the way. The FBI is so concerned about rumors about J. Edgar Hoover's you know, sexual proclivities that they interrogate a woman from a bridge club in Pennsylvania. It's amazing. Like, and there are multiple examples of this. Yeah, of just random right. American private citizens having a con, you know, having a conversation, making a joke. Someone overhears it. It gets to the FBI. That person gets a knock on the door and a and a and a, and a visit from G Men, right? And it's it's almost again, it's when it came to this issue of homosexuality, it was like you were living in a police state. That's how it was dealt with. Yeah. There's a funny follow-up to this story. I came across numerous people in the late 1960s, where homosexuality would come up in sort of conversations with FBI directors, and there would be a very different reaction. For instance, when Henry Kissinger was being vetted to become national security advisor, the one of his former grad students at Harvard was interviewed by a pair of FBI agents for Kissinger's background check. And Kissinger was a bachelor at, at this time. He was in between his wives. And the FBI agents sort of started asking these questions about his bachelor status. And they were sort of implying or asking, you know, is he a homosexual? Is Kissinger a homosexual? And this grad student said to the FBI agents, well, I don't know the answer to that question, but your director might. So, <laughs> so by the late 1960s, you know, this, this sort of yeah, we started to see the paranoia changes, has, right. has changed and people can make these jokes. And, and then the FBI agents sort of grumbled and kind of moved on to the next question. Yeah, I mean, and and it gets to this other thing, which is that in the height of what you call the lavender scare, which is really a part of history that I hope we we can like appreciate and sort of elevate as a really serious thing, right up there with the red scare, which we've done. Yeah. I mean, there's been countless movies and books right. and everything on how terrible it was if you were a communist in Hollywood. And but there's very very little very little, at least in terms of official Washington, about what it meant and how in some ways it was worse to be gay, as you point out in the book. Yeah. But there was this sort of pseudoscience that emerged of how you can know someone is gay, right? Mm -hmm. Like the, the I know there's, they walk funny, they're, they're limp wristed. And there are all these things that people, they were fastidious dress. You know what I mean? Like all this, all this stuff 
that people believed, serious people believed they could sort of sniff out a gay person. And it shows just how insane this regime really was, right? I mean, it's... Yeah, I think a major factor in this is the release of the Kinsey study. In Okay, yeah, talk about that. January 5th, 1948. And this is the famous Kinsey study. It's a survey of something like 5,000 white men. And it discovers the main finding that shocks the country is that 10% of American men between the ages of 18 and 65 had led had been exclusively homosexual for three years. And this basically gets sort of the, the statistic you hear that 10% of the population is gay, which is probably high, to be honest, but it comes from the Kinsey report. And this shocks the country. Because prior to that, first of all, homosexuality was an issue that was never really discussed openly. I mean, in the first outing in American politics, which is, the, I, which I which I write about, it happens in 1942 of a U.S. senator. The word homosexuality never appears in the press reports. They mm-hmm. come up with all these other euphemisms to, to to describe it, right? So this report comes out. It shocks the country. It it alerts the country to the notion or the fact that there are all these homosexuals out there that we don't know. And it means that if there's so many of them, right, if they're so pervasive, if 10% of the male population is homosexual, then that must mean that they're really good at hiding because they're not all visible. They're not all these, you know, extremely effeminate, foppish, stereotypical characters that we have. They could be anyone. And so then this leads to this, yes, these, these attempts to detect I mean, in 1950, when the Senate is launching an investigation into homosexuals in the government, Margaret Chase Smith, who's the sort of lone Republican woman from Maine, who was the earliest member of her party to come out against Joe McCarthy, interestingly, she raises the question, you know, does not, is the CIA capable of developing a machine that might be able to detect gay people? And in fact, the Canadian government in the 1960s, they had their own sort of lavender scare they created a sort of weird machine that would, you know, test people's blood rates in response to viewing homo- uh, viewing pornography. It was called the fruit machine. Sort of that was a colloquial expression for it because it would it would determine probably quite accurately actually because they I know that yeah. to to determine if someone's heart rate increases when they're looking at different types of pornography. So yes, there are all these different types or different ways of of discovering uh, or detecting someone's homosexuality. But, you know, often the consensus is, is that you can't tell. In fact, that's what, J. that's what J. Edgar Hoover tells LBJ at one point. LBJ, his, his top aide, Walter Jenkins, has been caught in a-, in a Yeah, I want to talk about thing. that. And LBJ is mystified, and, and you can hear it on, the, on, on his tapes. He's talking to Hoover about it. And Hoover tells him, well, some of them you can tell by the way they walk, but, but for most of them, you, you, you can't tell. I and mean, that's what make again, that's what makes this- homosexual threat so disturbing and frightening to people is that you can't tell, you can't spot the homosexual. Well, I want to talk about Lyndon Johnson, who is really one of the most fascinating figures of the 20th century, in my view. I agree. Because you do not paint the portrait of a president that is, that has hatred in his heart towards gay people. Mm. And later, after he's president, he returns to the ranch in retirement. He welcomes back people who had been disgraced and left his administration who were outed. It's rather that Johnson, who is one of the, at least in terms of his personal relationships, one of the crudest presidents, maybe even cruder than Trump in some ways, you could almost Mm. say, in that he would have aides come and 
take dictation while he was, you know, on the toilet. Yeah. And would, you know, sort of revel in urinating in front of, you know, a colleague at a stall and calling his member jumbo and things like that. Yeah. Not a refined or, you know, sort of faint of heart individual could not comprehend that someone would be gay. Is that, I mean, that, that's, you conclude that, would you, is that right? He couldn't understand. I know, known Walter, he has a family, his yeah. five kids. How is it that he would be, how could he, how is, how is this true? It must right. be a Republican plot or yeah. a communist. Or a Soviet. Or, or a Soviet, communist. right, exactly. He believed that this was something that it, it, it couldn't be. He couldn't, yep. he couldn't accept it. And that's really fascinating to me because it, it, it's not what you would expect. It's not like someone just hated gay people. It was that he really didn't understand it. Someone yeah, that's fair to say. I, I think LBJ had the prejudices of his era, but it wasn't like Nixon. Nixon had a real kind of pathological view towards gays, or at least the way he spoke about them. And again, it's interesting. you know. Well, Nixon believed that gays were part of this cabal that was destroying the country, that were in with like the hippies and the anti-war right. And, right, and everything else. The irony, of course, is that Richard Nixon's chief speechwriter, Ray Price, was a gay man. I mean, he's one of the he's one of the men I out I out in the book. He's been dead for quite a while. It's like clockwork, um, by the way. Every one of these guys who has an issue, like you, you know, we're going to talk about Reagan in a little bit, but it's like yeah. every everyone you think is like associated with the social conservatives, the right, will have gay people in their inner circle, right. and yeah, yeah, and yet and yet they're still able to kind of have these views in their head. You know, Nixon can say these right. awful things about gays that they're re responsible for the destruction of great civilizations, and yet. You know, his chief speechwriter is a mild-mannered liberal Republican, very discreet. And but Nixon knew Nixon knew that he was gay, didn't bother him. He was one of the most loyal Nixonians in the whole Nixon orbit. Well, I want yeah. to talk about someone named that has has almost been lost to history until you have you know kind of recovered this story and you've done a great service. And that's Bob Waldron. Yeah, who was, I guess you could say, kind of the aide de camp for Senator Johnson when he was the Senate Majority Leader and somebody who came from Texas politics and had an incredibly bright future. There's certain people as we live in Washington that you can tell when they get here that they are made for this town, that they are they kind of live and breathe politics and they're really good at it. They understand people. And this is Waldron and you sort of handle it. And then his life is destroyed yeah. by probably his best friend who finally kind of, you know, informs on him. It's snitches yeah. on him. Yeah. And you uh, uncover this whole episode, which the great Johnson biographer, Robert Caro, he you sort of wasn't in his books. I don't think he knew about it. And you reprint this heartbreaking letter that he writes to the man who destroyed his life. And just talk a little bit about that, because I really think one of the great, one of the many great things about this book is that you, you, the, you treat with such sort of humanity these people who have been lost to history and what it meant. And I and I felt when I was reading that letter, I was like, I, you cannot help but get a little bit choked up. It's so emotionally resonant. Yeah, yeah. Bob Waldron was a, a man from Texas, young man from Texas who worked for Johnson, the Senate Majority Leader. And then while he was vice president, he was just basically his body man, which is a very Washington job. It's right. kind of the gopher, but he was more than that. He was also a stenographer. He was the best stenographer on the Johnson staff. When you a sort of a fix it kind of person, like someone who would just yeah. take care of whatever needed to be right. taken care of. Yeah, he would travel with Johnson. Yeah. He would, you know, just take care of. Yeah, exactly. Mr. Mr. Fix it. And um, and by the way, this is the other thing is that there there that because a lot of this history is lost and all. I want to get 
you really nail down the fact that he 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 at one point owned a watch that was given to him after one of yeah. these trips that commemorated you know his his importance in the johnson inner circle which was later stolen yeah and so you you sort of unearth all of this stuff because well, I, yeah and in fact there's there's one thing i haven't really brought up in any interviews yet mm-hmm. but it's likely that he also waldron allowed johnson the use of his home to have an affair with his secretary. No, Mary. no, that's in the book. Yeah, that's in my book. But I haven't, yes, right, I haven't right, discussed yeah. this in interviews yet. But, yeah, yeah. Um, when Johnson was vice president, it's widely believed. It's it's rumored that he might have been having an affair with his secretary, Mary Margaret Wiley, who would go on and marry Jack Valenti, his aide, who was also accused of being gay. Who was accused of being gay? Yeah. Uh, later in the administration, in which Bill Moyers played a. Oh well, no, we're gonna we're gonna get to that. <laughs> we are going to get. Um, Bill Moyers, uh, whose reputation but, um, deserves to be trashed and yeah, burned uh, to the ground. No, but Waldron, I mean, there are, yeah. there are, it, it, I, I, I obtained Bob Waldron's FBI report and his civil service commission background check. And they interviewed a lot of people and some of them would remark, yes, Waldron would, you know, invite the vice president and his secretary over to his house. And he, and, and the secretary would walk out and knock on the door to ask if it was okay for, for the vice president to come into the house. So, you you know, one suspects that maybe he was offering his home as sort of a love nest to Johnson and his secretary. It's unclear. Well, the other thing about Waldron, which I thought was amazing, is that he had sex in the presidential yacht. No, that's someone else. I'm sorry, am I bad? Somebody my else. Bad. Right. Somebody else. That's is that a different uh, story. Okay. Um, anyway, and then a couple of weeks after, so Waldron is working for Johnson as vice president, and after the Kennedy assassination, he's preparing to go into the White House, and he's very close to Johnson. He's traveling with Johnson in the limousine from the funeral of JFK to Arlington National Cemetery. And that's that's where he is in sort of the, the pecking order at this point. But this background check that the Civil Service Commission is doing, because he's Johnson's trying to bring him onto the White House staff, this background check turns up evidence that Waldron is gay. And the evidence is a friend of his, one of Waldron's friends, whom he made a pass at one night years earlier. And this friend, when he's interviewed by the Civil Service Commission, relates this story to the Civil Service Commission investigators. Yeah. And in a really, by the way, awful kind of way of saying, well, you know, I am friends with him, but I just think that my patriotism or loyalty to the country is more important. And what a what a scummy scum. And they were probably, well, you know, he was probably led into that because what what, when you read, I mean, I I, I got Waldron's thousand page file declassified. Right. So I see all these interviews to all these people. And what comes up a lot is people saying, well, you know, he's a little effeminate. He wears tight pants. He doesn't seem to have much interest in the girls. Right. There's all these sorts of illusions. Yeah. Innuendo. Yeah. yeah. Innuendo. And then that leads the investigators to think, well, maybe we should start asking questions more directly of people. Right. And so you can see they're building up a case. Right. Right. And they're trying to find the one because they need evidence. You can't just have innuendo. You have to have some kind of evidence. And they get it in this in this case of of a friend of his who tells him this story about him making a pass. And he's dropped from the from the Johnson White House. He's sort of banned from the grounds. But his name turns up again the following year when the Jenkins scandal happens. The Jenkins scandal we all know about. That was on the front pages of every newspaper in the country when Walter Jenkins was arrested at a YMCA bathroom three weeks before the election. But then the FBI starts doing a full investigation. Waldron's name comes up again. And then this is what I've you know, this is what I've discovered is that there's this whole other dimension now to the 1964 
election because Johnson was concerned not only about the Jenkins case, which was public, he was deathly afraid that the Waldron story, which no one knows about until now, thanks to my book, he was deathly afraid that a second homosexual would be exposed as having worked for him. And if the Waldron story had come out, so to speak, you know, right after the Jenkins story, all of a sudden, it's not just one isolated example of a homosexual in the Johnson White House. Now you have two. And what you see often in my book is that whenever there's sort of two homosexuals somewhere, that's a conspiracy, right? It, right. Can't, just be, it can't just be a coincidence. It's this notion of propinquity, right? Like if there's more, if, if there's, and it's very similar to anti-Semitism in that way, right? If there's, if there's two Jews involved in something or you can draw a connection between the two of them, then you have a conspiracy. And so Johnson is deathly afraid that the Waldron story is going to leak. And there's a memo. I mean, there's conversations between Johnson and Nick Katzenbach, who was the acting attorney general or the deputy attorney general at the time, where Johnson is very, you know, very concerned. And he's trying to send the message to the Justice Department and to, to the FBI, to J. Edgar Hoover. You know, you better not screw me on this. You better not, you know, Bob Waldron's name better not get leaked. It better not, no one, but no one needs to know this man's name because it, it could be very, very bad. That's right. Now let's now talk about another Johnson aide named Bill Moyers. And some, some of our listeners, if you're a little younger, may not know who Bill Moyers was, but Bill Moyers worked for Lyndon Baines Johnson and then became like a kind of, I don't know, like a titan of like the liberal progressive media. He worked a lot with, with PBS. He had his own show for a long time. And just as sort of, you know, one of these, you know, kind of progressive liberal types in good standing. When Bill Moyers worked for Lyndon Johnson, he was a worm and kind of an, an anti-gay blackmailer. So tell us about the real story of Bill Moyers. And, and, and it does relate to Waldron in this one sense is that yeah. Moyers goes out of his way to get him disinvited to, to, to Johnson's ranch yeah. after he's sort of exiled from Washington because Lady Bird Johnson, the first lady, wanted, you know, was still friends with him yeah. and, 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 you know, adored him. So Talk a little bit about Bill Moyers, progressive hero and, you know, inveterate homophobe. Yes. Well, I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say inveterate homophobe. I think, again, he, it was more, he saw. Right, and he's, the, he's a, he, but he's certainly a McCarthyite when it came to this. Yeah. He was willing to use the accusations against people. Very pious man. Uh, you wouldn't, Bill you wouldn't Moyers. call him a homophobe? I, I, I just. That, All right, that, fine. That, he was, a, but he was certainly a purveyor of, of, of the, of, well, of, right. During this scandal, during the Jenkins scandal, he ordered the FBI to find evidence of homosexuality among staffers working for Barry Goldwater. That's been that's been recorded. Yes. It he also tried to get the FBI to find out whether or not potentially, presumably other White House staff yeah, who were his rivals, who were his rivals. Jack Valenti was gay, trying, trying to find out if, if 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 he was gay. And then in 2009. I believe it was Jack Schaefer asked Moyers about the Valenti episode because it had just been re F Valenti's FBI file had just been released. And Moyers, anyway, Jack Valenti goes on to become, I think, the first head of the MPAA. Yeah, the yeah, the Motion Picture Association. He was the first head of it, but he was the legendary head. Of he it. was a right, and 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 Valenti becomes an, an, a legendary figure in both Hollywood and politics. Yeah, sort of manages. Okay, so yeah. we should. But Moyers at the time said, and I'm quoting him that. No harm came to a single person from any of these allegations. And he said, nobody lost a job. And that's what he said in 2009. Well, bullshit. Well, yeah. I mean, so Bob Waldron 
lost his job, certainly. And there's this episode that I recount in the book in the wake of the Jenkins affair in, in October of 1964, when Moyers hears that Waldron is visiting with Lady Bird at the Johnson Ranch. She had sort of welcomed him back. And Valenti, sorry, and Moyers gets word that, that Waldron is there and basically orders him out or, or orders him evicted from the ranch in a, in a, in a pretty vindictive move. If I, if I may, and this is a small slight compared to the injustices other characters in your history suffer. I mean, many are driven to suicide. So I don't want to overstate it, but you have to think of it like this. This is somebody who was sort of born to become a, a, a very typical kind of Washington figure, a powerful political mm. player who understood how to do this. And some people are just born with that gift. Waldron clearly is one of those people. His ambition, his lifelong dreams are then just totally ruined, yep. you know, because of, of you know, who, his identity and who he was. And then in an act of kindness, the first lady is like, you know what? You are not going to be a non-person to me. I'm, I'm trying to imagine, and you write this so beautifully, what it would mean after all of that to then sort of to, to be reminded that, you know what? You're still a person. You're still a friend. Yeah. You're, you're not, you know, you no longer, you know, you haven't been erased from our world. And then Moyers goes out of his way to deprive him of even that. And for what reason? It was I don't think there was even a political threat there. It was just for I, I don't I don't get it. This is why it's I actually worse than that. Yeah. Aldrin at the time was still working on Capitol Hill. He was technically yeah. throughout this time he was employed by a congressman from Texas. Yeah, Bob Pickle, right? Or what? Uh, Homer Pickle. Homer uh, Pickle, my sorry. Yeah, I believe Jake's right. Jake Pickle. Jake Pickle. Yeah. At the time, because Johnson would sort of take people who were working on the congressional staffs of various Texans, and they would they would work for Johnson, but they would be on the payroll of a congressman or a senator. Yeah. Uh, Johnson yeah. had been Johnson would do this since he was Senate majority leader. And that's actually how Bob Waldron was employed. Waldron was never actually technically on Johnson's staff. He was he was always on a congressional staff, but he worked for Johnson. And what and what, you know, according to the FBI file, and I'm just looking at it here, I'm looking at my book just so I can quote it. Bill Moyers is on the phone with Deke Deloach, who's the number three man at the FBI. He's the FBI liaison to the White House. And Deloach tells Moyers that, you know, he, that his men have just interviewed Bob Waldron and he's on his way to the ranch. And Moyers says that he would, quote, put a stop to Waldron's attending the function. And then he would call Jake Pickle to, quote, stop Waldron. And so Waldron was then dropped from his, his yeah. job in, in Congress. He, was, he, he lost his job working for Congressman Pickle. And so, yeah, I think it's fair to say that Moyers... You yeah, got him fired. He actually got yeah Walden fired, which is a fair yeah that that's a fair and fair. and anyway I would I would urge the listeners of this podcast if you don't know look up Moyers because Moyers is like a, he's just pious sort of the wallpaper pious. of American liberalism. He's such a pious guy. He rails against you know Reagan and George W. Everybody every Republican. Yeah, he's outraged. And it's just an important thing to understand, even though this happened more than 50 years ago, that there were pr plenty of prominent Democrats who enthusiastically engaged in this, you know, kind of regime of, of second of the, that relegated gay people in this country to second class citizenship. I want to talk a little bit about Ronald Reagan, 
mm-hmm. who we associate as a kind of, you know, uh, a Goldwater conservative, as somebody who brings into national prominence Christian fundamentalists and a new social conservatism. That is the image of Reagan. The reality of Reagan is very different. He comes from Hollywood. Nancy Reagan, as you sort of describe her, is has a lot of gay qualities in a lot of ways. And so talk, I wouldn't talk about that first when he's governor. He has a very duplicitous aide named Lynn Lopsiger, who, <laughs> you know, basically tries to get rid of, once again, a rival in the Reagan circle through accusations of being gay. Talk a little bit about that first thing and then and just in generally sort of Reagan's relationship to to this regime. Well, I start the Reagan story when he was a young actor in Hollywood. And I think uh, that that plays so much of a role in this story of him and gays and homosexuality, because, you know, Hollywood then and now there are a lot of gay people working in Hollywood. In, in the in the various fields in 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 the creative fields in in Hollywood, and there's a story I recount of uh, well that he recounts actually in his memoir when he was a young actor starring opposite Betty Davis in the movie Dark Victory, where he's essentially being told by the director to play Betty Davis's gay best friend, but they can't be explicit about this because this is during the era of the code when you were not allowed to depict homosexuality on film. And Reagan is describing how the director wanted him to play this role. And he says that he wanted me to play it as if I was the sort of fella who could sit in the ladies' dressing room and dish with the girls while they're getting dressed. It's a very euphemistic way of saying he wanted me to play the role. What do you say? But I'm the kind of guy that, you know, they better I'm run. I'm the kind of guy if, they, if, they, if, <laughs> if I walk into the ladies' dressing room, they're going to be running around putting their clothes on. You know what I mean? Like he's, yeah. So right. he's very kind of sensitive to this and doesn't like the idea of playing a gay a gay role. It kind of makes even as an actor, he's 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 concerned that it'll that 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 he might be perceived as gay. And in fact, in Lynn Knopfsiger's memoir, he writes about, and I'm just going to quote it right now. You know, Reagan spent most of his adult life working in Hollywood, quote, where dwell and work a significant number of homosexuals, because he came out of the Hollywood scene where homosexuality was almost the norm. I also feared the rumors would insinuate that he too was one. So in 1967, Knopfsiger and some of his allies, they basically compile a dossier on two other aides in the administration whom they suspect of being gay. Right, right. Whom they suspect of being gay. And, but they are, as you say, they are, they, are, they are rivals in the administration. They don't like them. And you find this often, that homosexuality becomes a weapon. Right, but in, same with same with uh, you know being a communist. I mean, it's it's a similar kind of thing that happens. The homosexuality one yeah. is easier to use because with the communist accusation, you can uh, always be a Whitaker Chambers. You can always say. Well, also, I think the homosexual thing. Yeah. Anyone, anyone can be gay, right? They can they can be masculine. They can be feminine. They can be rich. They can be poor. You know, there was no correlation to reality, and so you could just fling this thing at 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 anyone. And so you see it, it, it's, it's a recurring feature in sort of bureaucratic warfare between institutions or within institutions, between people on staffs. And so that's really what it was in this case. And Reagan ends up firing these two aides. And it's unclear if they were gay to this day. It's, it's unclear. And, you know, I read a lot about it. And Luke, Luke Cannon, the great Reagan biographer, has written about this scandal in his books. And it's and it's unclear whether or not the accusations had much validity, but they were brought to Reagan's attention. He fired the two aides. A few months later, Drew Pearson, another 
great figure in the book. Not great, but he's a, 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 a dirtbag. A kind of a muckraker, I think is the term. Well, no, he's not a muckraker. He, he, uh, well, I mean, he, he, he did muckraking at times with Jack. He's Anderson, a gossip monger. A gossip monger. A gossip monger. As you yeah. point out, a lot of what he yeah. wrote ended up not being true and hyperbolized yeah. and everything like yeah. that. Absolutely. Yes. But he's sort of a great Washington figure, right? He's this short. Sure. The Washington this, merry-go-round column was Washington you know, merry-go-round, one of the most, one of the most important, powerful syndicated columnists in the country. He wears a fedora. I mean, he's right out of central casting, right? So he publishes this column alleging that a group of Reagan aides had a homosexual orgy at a timeshare in Lake Tahoe. And he doesn't name any names. Jack Kemp. Well, he doesn't name any names. Right, but it, okay. He does, right, but it, he it, does it, allude. He says that one of the men involved was an athletic advisor who's now away for the fall off season. And it did not take a genius to figure out whom he was talking about because just the previous summer, Jack Kemp, the starting quarterback at the time for the Buffalo Bills and a budding policy wonk, he had spent the summer working in Reagan's office as probably the most famous intern in America. There were articles, right. written, articles were written about this, okay? So this, in, this insinuation, it really sticks to Jack Kemp and he's never really able to shake it off. You know, in 1980, he's being considered as Reagan's VP nominee and he doesn't get it. And according to Bob Novak, Lynn Knobziger told him that it was because of that, quote, that homosexual thing. And it would, and it would, it would, it would remain sort of. And you, well, you clear his name. You, you point out. Well, there's no evidence the, for there's it. There's not no only that he, he wasn't even he didn't own a share of that Tahoe estate. I think. Well, I think he was. Well, he sold his share. He sold his share. Yeah, I right. He had co-owned. He had co-owned the Tahoe house with one right. of the men who was fired. It, it was all very murky. These accusations were all very murky. Reagan denies them initially. He denies firing the men, and he and he. And, and by the way, his first reaction is very human. He says that we're yes. talking about people's lives and families yes. that have not, yes. which, which is uh, really important because it's not like everybody in this era was, you know, there wasn't some, it wasn't as, as much of a kind of consensus. Well, of course, this is terrible. It was always, there was, there was always a sort of in the background, it's, there's, it, there's, these were lives that people yes. were dealing with. And it's surprising to sort of find out like Jack Kennedy is another one that you could you that, that there was this humanity in the middle of yeah. these of the yeah. lavender scare and no, that there were times Reagan, when people got a pass and it was you know yeah. Reagan demonstrated it then he also demonstrated it in 1978 when there was a, an attempt to ban gay people from teaching in public schools in That's the state right. of California on the on the ballot but actually there's a funny story about this Warren Beatty was coming home from shooting a film in Africa or something and this was called proposition 6 to ban gay school teachers that same year, there was Proposition 5, which was to ban smoking in public places. And Warren Beatty's, you know, getting off the plane and he's being at the airport at LAX and he's being asked by a reporter, well, what do you think about Proposition 6? And he says, well, I have to oppose it because I do it everywhere all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, that's um, great. Well, I love that you have this. You have such a great aside in there, which is, you know, after Drew Pearson publishes this piece alleging the... Um, gay orgies in, in Reagan's inner circle. The Democratic governor of New York, Avril Harriman, writes up a telegram and says, great, great work exposing Reagan. Yeah. So you, right. it's just, it just shows that like, you know, yes, right now the Democrats are the party of uber tolerance of everything. Yeah. But, you know, you just, you, you scratch the surface and you go back enough 
And what you find is that they were totally willing in this period to play this awful kind of, you know, McCarthyite games like everybody else, yeah. just as they are today in, in things having to do with alleged Russian influencers, things like that. But that's another thing. Yeah, no, it is an important theme in the book, which is that, you know, again, the the place of the homosexual in American society was so marginalized. And, you know, there were not it's not as if this was this this was yet an issue that progressive people or liberal minded people had taken up. That would really not happen until the late 1970s or really the 1980s that you would see homosexuality sort of enter mainstream politics and fall along ideological lines. Well, I would. You know, before we go, Jamie, and thank you so much for your time on this, I want to just bring it to the present. Yeah. Because in this history, I think you really do capture what is a kind of unique, a unique subjugation, a unique dilemma for people who basically, it's not just that they were forced to keep a part of their lives in secret, that any given moment, their lives could be destroyed, their families could be destroyed if their secret was exposed. Mm -hmm. And I wanna compare that to the fact that we do not live in that world today is a great thing in America. But this sense that, you know, the LGBTQI plus world is so, is facing a kind of unprecedented oppression at this point. And what are the lessons that we can learn about studying this dark period of American history and seeing the progress we've made and then comparing it to the kind of claims of oppression today. Can you talk a little okay. bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I don't I, I think it's fair to say that no group of Americans have witnessed a more dramatic transformation in their legal status, in their social status. Yes. Their status in the eyes of their fellow citizens than gay people have over the last 75, 80 years, however you far back. You but if you were to read the Human Rights Campaign Fund or you were to read GLAAD literature today, yeah. you would think that it was as bad as it was in 1956. Yeah, I think there's a lot of alarmism around these issues on both sides. I mean, I think it's, you know, the, I think we talk far too much about these issues and the way that they've sort of, the way that sort of gender identity is has now become this new, sort of, it's almost as if this is the most important issue in America. You can't turn your head without reading about it somewhere, uh, about debates in schools and whatnot, but that's sort of another topic. But yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's an amazing thing to behold. And even in my own lifetime, I'm only 38 years old. I've witnessed an amazing, amazing progress right. in my own lifetime. And it's in having written this book and done the research and you know read the documents and interviewed people to see where how far our country has progressed and how dramatically it's changed since the Roosevelt administration, since the 1930s. It's remarkable. And I think it's a real testament to our liberal society and its ability to change for the better and the ability of people to use their First Amendment freedoms of freedom of speech and persuasion to change hearts and minds. And so, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's an incredible David and Goliath story. I mean, this is about a, a small group of people who took on the medical establishment, the political establishment, the religious establishment, basically the entire you know firmament of the media authority, the media establishment, the media, everything. I mean, everything yeah. was against everything was against gay people, and to totally transform that over the course of the past 70, 80 years, it's just a remarkable, remarkable story. And one that let me let me push you a little further, and you may you may choose to answer this or not. 
But what do you think someone like Frank Kameny would say today to someone like, say, Chase Strangio? And I'm specifically thinking that, that Frank Kameny used his First Amendment rights and the concept of free speech to launch a movement that spurred this incredible revolution that has led to the dignity and freedom and equality of citizenship for, for, for gays and lesbians in this country. And then you have someone like Chase Strangio, who is now, he's an ACLU attorney who believes that it is that he wants to fight with every fiber in his body to make sure that books that question a kind of trans or gender fluid narrative are not, cannot be sold on Amazon. And, you know, should, there should be efforts to try to prevent people from, from, from reading them or encountering those ideas. Yes, I do believe that Frank Kameny, well, I know that Frank Kameny was an ardent supporter of the, Absolutely, First yeah. of the First Amendment. He was actually a very active ACLU member. I believe he was on sort of the Capitol, the, 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 the D.C. chapter's board for many years. And Frank was always willing to take on any argument from any corner, no matter how. He almost actually, I got to know Frank later on before he died, and I interviewed him for the book. And he relished the fight. He relished debating the most virulently anti-gay people, which, by the way, he had no choice because he was the first. Talk about getting abuse and being around. I mean, he he, he braved it all. I mean, he ruined his life. He ruined the man. The man had no, you know, the man lived in penury his entire life because he was ruined by his government. It's it's a very sad story. I mean, it's it's obviously a triumphant story because he won in the end. Yes, but he did. Personal, his personal life was very, it was very sad what was done to him. It was very tragic what was done to him. It was very wrong and evil. And I would say he, he could not have done that in a country that didn't have a First Amendment, that didn't Absolutely have not. a tradition of free speech. So when I see people who are, you know, kind of presenting themselves as the guardians and champions of LGBTQI plus rights, questioning free speech in the First Amendment, as a as a small L liberal, as somebody who 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 adheres to these principles, I, I my my head spins. It's unfortunate, and I think part of it has to do with the fact that you know because gay people or the LGBT movement is now culturally ascendant and has won the argument. I think a lot of folks, you know, and this is not unique, by the way, to LGBT people. A lot of people, once they're in power, yep. don't you know necessarily uphold the values or maintain the promises that they said that they would like think of Barack Obama and drones, right? I mean, there's just one example. There's all sorts of examples in politics of people making promises. And then once they're in power, they don't act on them. This promises. isn't about, I mean, this isn't about not fulfilling a campaign promise. It's about if you really, you've got, this is why you have to read Jamie's book here. Okay. If you understand this story, this history, then you will, you will come away with it understanding that the only way to preserve these rights is to also understand the basics of free speech and that you can that 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 is that's an inviolable principle that is something that you can't say well it goes up to a point but there are a bunch of kids who are trans who you know will be triggered and that that will cause suicides and we have to balance this with other things and their safety and all of these kinds of post-liberal arguments that you have to understand that the, 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 that they run against the very tools and the weapons that they that this movement needed in order to achieve this level of equality that we have now. 
That's a very ringing endorsement of my book. And I think I'll just leave it at that. I couldn't have put it better myself. Well, thank you, Jamie, because you wrote a very important history. I'm, I'm so happy for you. And it's it's really great. I want to tell the listeners to read it. It's episodic in a way. So you can, if you don't have time to read a full 800 plus page book in one sitting and no one does, you can open it to various things and you will be, it'll, it, it's, it's, it's absolutely engrossing. It's really, really wonderful. So thank you again, Jamie, and good thank luck you, on Eli. this book tour. It was great to have you. This is a kind of a special episode. If you like the Reeducation podcast, give it five stars and then give it five stars again and write a nice review. We, I really appreciate it. It's especially now it helps get the word out. So thank you so much. And Jamie, thank you. And I will see you next week. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. Mm-hmm.